You are Locked On AFL, your daily AFL podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome to Locked On AFL. I'm your host, Kane Pittman. Particularly with a pathetic effort from Pitt. I mean, it was the most disgraceful display I've ever seen from a big film. That's pretty hard on an individual, but he's going to have to live with that. And alongside me is the great man, Josh Lloyd. Lloyd is Lloyd. Lloyd to Lloyd. 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 Thanks, Kane. I'm not sure about being great, not sure about being a man, but I'm, I'm, I'm definitely here. So we are, are we ready to talk about the AFL, ready to talk about uh, some news that we, just as we're recording, some news has just dropped. We'll talk about that with the, uh, the SNN stuff. But um, what, do you, what do you want to start with? Well, it is Tuesday, which means every Tuesday morning we do the same thing. We start off with this or that, so you can hit the music. Alright, so this week I wanted to go a little bit of a different approach and we've seen some teams that we expected to be really good and to be contending at the end of the season get off to a little bit of a slow start. But what about the teams that we weren't so sure about that have had a really good start? So my question, this or that this week, more impressive team so far, Port Adelaide or the Gold Coast? I think a lot of that comes down to how you're defining impressive because Port Adelaide I think has looked the better team. They are you know, sitting comfortably on top of the ladder with an absolute monster percentage. 244 after three rounds is a huge number. We talked about the impact of the low scores, you know, inflating and deflating percentages, but they're going to see a larger spread because of the lower scores this season. Um, and the Suns, yeah, they're currently sitting third, but relative to expectations. And Port Adelaide weren't expected to be on top of the ladder being this good. But Gold Coast were expected to be where Adelaide and Fremantle are at the moment. Yeah, right down the bottom without a win. So I would have to say impressive in terms of the surprising aspect as well as how well they're actually playing. I think it has to be Gold Coast, not to take anything away from Port Adelaide, but the sheer shock of saying, looking at a fixture and going, when's Gold Coast playing because I want to watch that game. Uh, That's impressive. Yeah, yeah, I could probably go with that. I'm going with Port Adelaide for this, but I did read a stat or I read a tweet yesterday. I can't remember who tweeted this one out, but said this is the third year in a row that Gold Coast have started two and one. Okay, I'm a little <laughs> bit, and and I am just a little bit wary of the, of the fixture. And the funny thing about these two teams That's is true. they've both they've both played Adelaide, <laughs> which mm. which clearly to this point they've been the easy beats. But it's it is Port for me, and the reason for that is I spoke a couple of weeks ago about the fact that they're sneakily older than you think because. They've got such young, uh, such impressive young talent that are uh, making an impact. And with the highlight players, I spoke about Dersma, who we'll get to a little bit later on, uh, Rosie. So Port Adelaide uh, have, have got a lot of attention for those reasons. But the engine room, the midfield, the guys that have been around for a long time are all above 30. And for that reason, I think that Port Adelaide this year is maybe their last real crack at, at going from a team that hasn't been in premiership contention the last few years to make a, a, a bolt, to be a bolter and go for that flag. And what I love about Port Adelaide the first two weeks, and the first three weeks, I should say, if you include round one, but particularly against Adelaide uh, and Fremantle on the weekend, is that they've just they've been absolutely dominant. When you look at the stats, they're number one for kicks, number two for disposals, number two for marks, number two for hitouts, number one for scoring shots. They're having 23.6 scoring shots per game. And the scary part about that is when you look at their percentage, they're only uh, shooting at 52% accuracy on goal. So uh, there's a lot of room 
for improvement there. And if they had a kick straighter, maybe that percentage is even more impressive. But two of the older guys that have really turned it on so far, Travis Boak and Brad Ebert, they combined for 12.4 inside 50s individually. They're both in the top five in the AFL and score involvement's 13.3 uh, between them. It's the old brigade that are getting the job done for Port Adelaide. And Travis Boak maybe is playing the best footy that he's played in, in a number of years. Port Adelaide is an interesting one. And you mentioned the offensive success that they're having and the poor conversions. But defensively, they are really turning the screws on, on teams. And some of this is a testament to how well they're playing. It is also a little bit like, well, is there going to be some correction here? How much of it is pressure they're putting on? How much of it is just poor luck? Because they uh, opponents are going at a league-worst 67% disposal efficiency against Port Adelaide, and they are only allowing 31.7 inside 50s, which is, you know, the, the uh, Port is 31.7, Collingwood is 33.3, and then the next uh, best team in that stat is the Bulldogs at 37, and it's a big, big drop-off in terms of opponents inside uh, 50s. And you can see the two top teams, the Magpies and the Power, really limiting those entries. But is that a small sample size issue, and then when teams can get a bit of a run on and they don't go at 67%, then those inside 50s go up and they look a little bit worse? Or is it the immense pressure they're putting on that's causing those poor disposals and that, and that bad efficiency, therefore leading to low, low inside 50s? So it's a little bit, again, so much of this stuff is a bit chicken or egg. Is it just yeah, uncontested, yeah, unforced turnovers that's allowing this, or is it the pressure that Port Adelaide's putting on that's, that's leading to this? defense that really is you know one of the best in the uh, AFL at the moment yeah one of the other questions we had with the mailbag last week was asking whether Port Adelaide needed oh, yeah. Ollie Wines back yeah, well uh, and, and maybe, maybe the conditions actually were perfect for him I, I don't know how many of the listeners watching this game but it was pouring rain and when it started to pour rain that was actually when Port Adelaide started to get away with this game with Freeman or it was pretty tight before that and Freo actually had the lead uh, late in the first quarter, might have might have been at the end of the first quarter, but Ollie Wines, 25 disposals, six clearances, and kicked really the, the ceiling goal in the fourth quarter as well. He looked really fit, and you never know what to expect, uh, obviously coming off the break, and then last week, the suspension for, for breaking the coronavirus protocol. So Ollie Wines, you saw straight away why he's so important to this team. And perhaps before we move on to the Gold Coast a little bit more, because yesterday we didn't talk about really Raul at all, even though I feel like maybe he's the most... Uh, talked about player we've had on the podcast so far yeah you've got in the rundown a little bit later but while we're on the power Dersma this is a pretty serious looking hamstring injury uh, I, I believe it looks like it might be a three to four weaker but uh, maybe he just hasn't done a hammy before because the way he pulled up this looked like it, it had potential for a, for a season end like a tendon injury with with uh, how much pain he looked like he was in yeah, look, let's let's hope it's nothing more serious than than that three to four week injury, which is a, a pretty standard hamstring timetable. You're, you're right; it, it didn't look good. Um, one other thing on Porto there before we do transition to Gold Coast is it, we talked about fixture, and their two games have been against yeah you know, since the restart Fremantle and Adelaide, and they're the teams that currently sit 17th and 18th, and their next two teams are against uh, games are against West Coast and Brisbane. So yeah, if they can, you know, not the West Coast is going that well, but we'll get a, a little bit clearer of an idea of how they look in terms of those defensive numbers, their offensive numbers, where they sit on the ladder in these next two rounds. And if they can come out of this you know, one-on-one, if they win both of them, then they are a legitimate, um, not quite powerhouse, but they're looking pretty bloody good. Yeah, this game against West Coast is going to be a lot of fun to watch because, again, last week the pressure was on the Eagles, but I feel like it's been amplified 
uh, even more so. Even just watching some of the, the footy shows last night on Monday night, everyone's talking about the Eagles. And, and we'll get to it a little bit later on, but potentially things are going to turn around for them and they're going to have a nice run at home. So if they can pick up a win against Port Adelaide, that would be big for them. But as far as the Gold Coast go, uh, again, obviously super impressive. I'm more skeptical than most, I feel like, in terms of their chances of being really successful this season. It just generally, generally, it's just really hard for young teams to maintain that momentum throughout. At the moment, there's a bit of a shock factor with the Gold Coast, I think. Uh, pretty quickly, teams are going to look at them and say, well, okay, this team's pretty serious. This is a fair income team, and they can damage you, particularly offensively, with the ball in hand. They're using the ball terrifically well, moving the ball quickly. And Matty Rao, again, I saw some talk last night that potentially he could win the Brownlow. At this point, I mean, he's got probably two best on grounds. The one thing that... that it's strange to me. And I know people just want to make comparisons, but they keep on bringing up Joel Salwood. Well, <laughs> the thing with what Matt, Matt Real is doing for mine is it's hard to explain how much more impressive this is than what Joel Salwood was doing. If you remember, Joel Salwood's first season was in 2007. Uh, Geelong had a pretty handy midfield uh, back in 2007, let's be honest. Uh, Real is the star attraction. He's not the fifth or sixth option getting off the chain. Not to take anything away from what Sola did. He was fantastic in his first season. This is on a complete different level. Real is the star of the show. And the Suns look really damaging. We'll see. I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to say they haven't been impressive. Put it this way. Because they have. But we'll see how they go over the next few weeks. And the opposition changes a little bit. And uh, they take on teams that are expecting them to be good. I know, I know his uh, teammate Noah Anderson gave the comparison of Joel Selwood back last season uh, for Matty Rao, but to me he is uh, he's more similar to another Red Bull, and that is Michael Voss. Now, he's not Michael Voss, and Michael Voss is one of the greatest players of all time, but the way that he get he's in there hard, but also get look, Selwood was never considered this, you know, penetrating kick who's you know, hitting off both sides of the body. But that goal that Rao kicked on the left from basically on fifty, just outside fifty, that is that's not something that you see and you see more Joel, Joel Selwood than me. That's not something you expect Selwood to be doing breaking out of the middle and just banging one in from fifty five on his left. That is more of a of a Voss thing. And that's more of the player that he uh, that he reminds me of. He's got that little bit of a, a bigger body, but it's not. It's he is the star of the show. That's fine, but it's not just him in Gold Coast because there are a bunch of guys that look down. Like Tuke Miller has been ridiculously good these last two weeks. Like he's getting uh, he's getting clearances, he's getting score involvements, he's getting on the end of uncontested chains, he's yeah, hitting targets yeah, comfortably. You got guys like uh, Darcy McPherson who kicked. An absolute ripper of a goal. Uh, ben Ainsworth is Connor Buderick is the is the rising star nomination. Lacocious. Um, Isaac Rankin hasn't even played yet. Like he's been out these two weeks. So when how does he mix back in there? Hugh Greenwood is dominating with tackles and clearance work. So it's it's not just oh, I'm just watching for Matty Rowell. It is a Lockie Weller is you know playing fantastically again. Needs a haircut, but these guys are are doing a fantastic amount of work. Yeah, all around Rowell. Um, so it's not just that one man. That's why I have a little bit more confidence that not necessarily that they're going to finish in the top four or even in the finals, but they're going to be not in that bottom three or four teams because there's a bunch of guys that all seem to be growing together. All right. So Essendon update. We we ready to we ready to dive into this? I'm not sure yep. again that that anyone knows what's actually going on well, with Essendon, and that's that's part of the challenge. But uh, you want you want to lead us off here? Yeah, I'll tell you the most recent news. Of course, this is a podcast, so it's not going live. But Connor McKenna and James Stewart are the two players who will have to quarantine for the 14 days, and that's it. They're the only players who are going to be out 
for Essendon as they uh, as they move forward to take on Carlton and Collingwood in the next two weeks. So it's only those two guys. All Essendon players and staff have tested negative, um, except for uh, Connor McKenna. We don't know the result of his retest. So everyone else has been cleared. And the only other person who was considered a close contact was James Stewart. So they're the guys who are out. That's it. So all this huff and puff, it's not fair, Essendon, they're going to postpone games, the season's ruined. There's two blokes that are going to miss two weeks and... It's not the whole back six. Like, is James Stewart considered? And Connor McKenna, they like, oh my god, that's ruined our season. Like, these these are two blokes that that are gone for the next two weeks, um, and no one else has tested negative. So it appears like while it, it's a it's a terrible bombshell to get that alert on your phone on Saturday and go, oh no, like a player's tested positive. There's all these guys. We he was positive and he was at training, and then they didn't separate the groups. All in all, it's uh, it looks to be okay. And I say that with the biggest air quotes that I can possibly throw out there. Uh, maybe I am a little too skeptical this morning, Josh, because I don't know. It sounds a little funny to me that there was only one player, one player that he was in close enough contact to to go into quarantine. That seems a little strange to me. But uh, from all reports, it was external that we're doing the, uh, yeah, the investigation, Department I guess. Of, uh, Department of Health and Human Services uh, investigated. It wasn't an internal situation. So I guess... Again, again, you uh, you have. Oh, I I think you'd have a little bit more faith in that rather than just uh, Essendon coming and going. Nah, guys, all good. We're we ready to go. As far as the fixture goes, we sort of touched on this a little bit, but I, I think you would have to be pretty silly to believe that this is the last scare or the last positive test the league is going to have, regardless of whether it turns out that it was a fake positive, And we don't know. I mean, I would have to imagine that that might even happen again when you're testing people so regularly. It's probably going to happen at some point. They were talking that they've done up to, uh, was it 13,000 tests since uh, teams came back to the club. So that's a lot of tests. And uh, unfortunately, there's going to be an anomaly. And if there's an anomaly, it's, it's really going to uh, take over the news and potentially really disrupt the club. But I think that the, the numbers and, and just generally how many people we're talking about here in the AFL uh, system, there's probably going to be another positive test. So when I hear so many people talking about, well, they need to postpone the, the current game, they can't play that game, or uh, Melbourne should be the team to first play Essendon if they're uh, depleted by you know quarantine, to me it doesn't make a lot of sense because the reason, the reason why these rules were put in place by the AFL to start to say, if this happens... This is what's going to happen. You have to feel the side. The reason they did that is because if you keep on postponing games and you keep on saying, well, we'll just shuffle this back, we'll shuffle this back, eventually you're not going to be able to fix it if you get two or three of these situations. It's going to be too difficult to go back. The idea is that hopefully every team will play one another. As I said yesterday, not only is Essendon the team that's hurt, the team that's benefited maybe more than anyone if it was to be the original eight players missing would have been Carl. So there's there's a number of clubs that uh, win or lose out from this, and it's really unfortunate and it sucks. But we, by by continuing on and only delaying the one game, uh, I think it gives you the best chance of actually finishing the season. And the one point that I mentioned before we started recording to you, and, and apparently it was Jared Whaley, which makes sense. I did watch 360 last night. He suggested if this was the case where now there's only two players that go into quarantine, one thing they could do, and it's very late notice and it, it would you know, maybe not be difficult to pull off because it's not like fans are involved or, or a huge amount of people, but maybe recovery-wise it would be difficult, would to would be to say, okay, well, let's play Essendon-Melbourne on Wednesday night and then let's push uh, Essendon-Carlton back to, you know, maybe Monday. And same with the, the Melbourne game 
uh, this weekend against Geelong. Maybe have that on Monday, even though they were playing on Sunday afternoon as scheduled. Maybe you can get away from that. And then the following week, push back the Essendon-Collingwood game from Friday to Sunday. And then all of a sudden, hopefully, you can get back in, in the rhythm of it. I think the even if it disrupts teams individually, you need to keep rolling, particularly this early in the season. If not, you're setting yourself up for disaster. Yeah, look, I'm not about all this. Uh, yeah, it's unfair to, to these. There, there's going to be things that are unfair during this season. I, I think we know this. Oh, it's unfair to Melbourne. Or oh, They should get an opportunity to play Essendon without these players. Like, if that's the way it works, like at some point that game's got to be replayed. Like, that, that, that's fine. But I don't think we can sit here on Tuesday and say, all right, boys, you're up tomorrow. Like, I don't think that's going to be... Uh, that needs to be something that would be planned into recovery sessions and training loads. A little bit of time in advance to allow an extra game to be slotted in during the week. I don't think that... You know, if we sit here and try and legislate fairness in a season that's going to have plenty of these things thrown up, you do one thing, and then if that happens again three or four more times, everything is out. It's, it's completely screwed up. So I, I don't think that you can have that be something like, well, this is just a, a one-off anomaly. Therefore, Essendon plays Melbourne now uh, in one day's notice. And then, because in the next time it happens, you've got to do the same thing. And the next time it happens, you've got to do the same thing. And you're going to have games all over the place and injuries potentially increasing because of short breaks between games. I just think you've got to go ahead with the fixture the way it is. You find a way later on in the season to slot that Melbourne, Carlton, oh, sorry, uh, Essendon, Essendon Melbourne game in, into the schedule, and you just go well. Okay, it, it's it's shit. You didn't get to play them when they were going to have you know, two, five, six, eight guys out. Oh well, be good enough to beat them at full strength. And if, if you want to be taken seriously, like beat them at full strength. Like that's as simple as that. Not like oh, it's not fair. They didn't have their players when they were supposed to play us, but now they've got their players back. Like oh, shit happens. Like this is going to happen continually. And the more times you try and legislate apparent fairness, it's going to cause way more problems, like a domino effect down the, down the road. I think. The other news that came out yesterday, and I was kind of confused why this seemed so difficult for. Um, I, I guess people to understand, I was listening to Talkback Radio and they were really going off about it. And that is the contact training. Uh, from now on, it, there will be only contact training in groups of eight rather than full uh, full team contact uh, training. So th- it's very simple. The, the reason for this, for mine, when I heard it, I said, okay, yeah, this kind of sucks for teams and chemistry and, and working together and doing that full match practice is going to be really difficult because they're already coming in of interrupted preparation, but it's it's very easy. The, the reason for this is because if you have another situation like we had with Conor McKenna and he was in a full team physical contact practice, then all of a sudden you open yourself up to this huge investigation of, well, who did he, who did he touch on? Uh, where did he blow his snot? And was which direction was the wind going? And could the snot have potentially touched this player? This way, the groups are separated into eight and it's very easy to identify the players you need to focus on and the players you need to look at who have potentially been uh, opened up to the, the, the player that tests positive. So, I, I don't know. I mean, it sucks again. I mean, there's a lot of things that suck about this season, but if you ask me, having footy back is much better than the alternative. Yeah, uh, there's there's literally no argument for me to say, well, they should be full contact training. Because even when you think about it, right, you think about full contact training, to me, the idea of training majority should be um, we're working on your skills, which doesn't require full contact. Like you're not going to be, there isn't un, under no circumstance are you going to be going in at the same level of intensity in a training scenario with the potential to hurt your teammates than you would be at a match. So what are you doing? You're putting in a little bit of 
you know, contact at balls around, but it should be more about working your structure. Where are you standing at stoppages? How are you working out? Where are these players going to be in these scenarios? More tactical, skill-based things versus everyone just jump on the ball and let's all tackle each other and half of you put on a, a fluoro vest and the other half don't. Like, there is there is yeah, parts of that that are important. Yeah, especially uh, body contact in, in marking contests, I think is something that is in, important. And But... The overall, like everyone just jumping in and, and playing like scratch matches, I feel like that's what people are thinking. Oh man, now they can't play scratch matches at training. How are they going to learn? Like that's, I don't think that's how you get ready for a game. No, I would agree with that. And it's funny though this week when I look at the news, and clearly it's been dominated by by COVID and, and Connor McKenna. But uh, one of the the interesting things that we haven't heard this week is about the shorter quarters and how uh, they should be. Uh, uh, extended back out to 20 plus time on and the reason for that is because uh, now the AFL can easily point to this situation and say well this is why they're shorter quarters because even though we got through round two unscathed we don't know what's going to happen moving forward but it's interesting because I've had this thought in my head that the shorter quarters mean that it's easier for teams that get an early lead and they can push away and teams can't come back and it, and it takes away some of the drama now there's two clear outliers to that, and funnily enough, they both involve Carlton. Obviously, Carlton came back from 42 points, just fell short against Melbourne, and then on Saturday night, Geelong were down by 42 points and also just fell short against Carlton. Maybe uh, Carlton deserved that one, considering the week before they were probably pretty unlucky not to pick up the win in the end. But I look back at the numbers so far this season. So in round one, the halftime leaders were 8-1. and one. In round two, the halftime leaders were 7 0 and 1. The, obviously, there was the draw there. And then in round three, halftime leaders were 7 and 1. So that means if your team's winning at halftime, the re- your record is 22 2 and 1 so far this season. So that does tell you that there aren't many comebacks going on. But when you compare that to last year, 20 minute quarters plus time on, after three rounds, the halftime leaders were 23 and 4. Yeah. So <laughs> it, it, the numbers say that it's pretty obvious if you get off to a, a fast start and you have the lead at halftime, even if you extend uh, some of the, the quarters, you're probably still going to put yourself in the best chance to win. And the only two real games, I mean, there's been a bunch of close games uh, this year for sure, but definitely uh, that number tells you that this isn't exactly anything new when people say that the halftime uh, teams are picking up the win. Yeah, exactly. And look, if that Geelong game and then the Carlton-Melbourne game go the other direction, then... We're at basically the same numbers that we were last year through these first three rounds. And even had the the game this weekend, um, uh, the Sydney-North Melbourne game, where you know, Sydney was out to a big league, North Melbourne came back, and then Sydney yeah, pulled away by 11 in the end. But it doesn't... What, what do we count as a successful comeback? Is Melbourne's comeback successful? Or sorry, Carlton's comeback successful even though they didn't win, even though they got it back to that area? Is that So that doesn't count as successful because they didn't get the victory, same as Geelong's comeback? They were able to get there, and a one-point margin, and I'm pretty sure anyone who's doing AFL statistics and statistics in general, when the margin is a uh, under 12 points, it's considered... Um, not not lucky, but it's there's luck and chance go into that more than actual uh, extrapolatable numbers. So anything that's within that, especially one goal margin, it's you know a coin tossy in terms of which direction it goes. So you don't look at anything within that twelve point margin, and maybe that's reduced because of the quarters. Yeah, you know, maybe it's ten nine points, whatever it is. In that sort of an area, you look at that as not a definitive. Well, they won because of this, or they lost because of this, because that is it. it quite a couple of just quick 50-50 decisions can change that game. So 
we can look at these numbers and consider them. Um, yeah, the comebacks are not there, but again, is you know, Carlton and Geelong, their comebacks are unsuccessful because they didn't get over the line, even though they were able to reel in a 40-point deficit in the, the minimal amount of time. I, 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 of course, I want the, the longer quarters back in general because I don't like seeing teams score under 40 points, which happened you know three times this round and then two other teams under 45. Like, I, I don't like seeing that on a score. I want to see yeah, 100 to 80, 110 to 90. I want to see bigger scores, but... Yeah, outside of that, I don't think in terms of the comeback issue and your yeah, teams pulling away earlier, it's really been an impactful thing and your numbers would back that up. Yeah, 11 games won by 30-plus points so far this season and seven games under 10 points. So there's certainly been no shortage of, of close games. And again, uh, you, you spoke about it, whether it's goal accuracy, whether it's one turnover, whether it's just flat out a little bit of luck, uh, the, those close games... Uh, can obviously be impacted. The two ones you mentioned, obviously, Carlton Melbourne, Carlton Geelong, but uh, there was obviously a draw as well. Yep. Uh, Essendon Sydney was a close game. I mean, you can you can count them off in round one, North Melbourne, St Kilda. There's been plenty of games that have been decided by under under a goal. As far as any other news before we wrap this up, Josh Dunkley, uh, unfortunate for the Dogs, they have a big win. Looked like he did this right on the final siren, which you can't get much more unlucky than that. Yeah, so it was uh, the ball was getting pumped into the GWS goal square. The dogs were up by a significant margin, obviously. And as the ball landed, uh, he he rolled his ankle, ended up with a, a high ankle sprain, a syndesmosis injury, which initially the dogs reported at two weeks, and then about. 20 minutes later, it came out with six weeks, and now it's looking like two months, and that's a big chunk of his season that's going to be out. Um, he is a guy that's been super important in, in getting those uh, hard balls out, at least, I guess, with Tom Libertore back. That does provide uh, some option there, but that, that's a big loss for the Dogs who got things back on track on, on Friday night with Dunkley out for. You would think yeah, probably two months is looking more likely at this point. Uh, Whitfield, the concussion, we, we know. We know a lot about that one, Thank, thankfully. Uh, Aaron Norton got away with with no type of penalty. I didn't see any way that there could have been for that situation. But Whitfield, that was a, that was a pretty savage blow to the head. Yeah, I'm not sure if he... I thought when he got hit, he got hit on the shoulder and maybe he hit, hit his head on the ground. But he didn't look right after that. We I don't know if he's... He's still in the concussion protocol. He hasn't been ruled out yet. But Tom McCartan, uh, you know, another player up in Sydney, because the, the Swans do have the game on Thursday night against the Bulldogs, he has been ruled out with the concussion. So there are two, two guys up there in New South Wales dealing with those head injuries. We still don't know the exact scenario with Whitfield, whether he'll be ready to play this week. But McCartan already ruled out for Thursday night. Well, the other things we've got in the rundown here we've already touched on. Took Miller, we spoke about him. Xavier Dersmer, obviously, three to four weeks. Any other injuries? I know Luke Dalhouse had a concussion. He was taken out of the yep. game uh, very early, so we'll wait and see what happens. It's always difficult with, with head knocks. Uh, but what else we got? I mean, I know you've got the King Brothers here. I feel like that's almost uh, a longer conversation. Yeah, but is. watching the game, watching the Gold Coast uh, game on the weekend, uh, the, the Gold Coast version of the King Bros was unbelievable. He's got a beautiful kick. He's athletic, good hands. He looks like uh, a lock. And you can see why they were so keen on making sure he stayed up there. They, that is that is a longer conversation. The last thing I want to ask you, Kane, though, is the news about Western Australia having 30,000 people at games and in July having 60,000 people there. And yet plenty of talk. Uh, Melbourne Storm has moved out of Melbourne now to play their games in Sydney due to the, the spike in uh, COVID cases down here in Victoria. And yet talk of plenty of teams going across to Western Australia just in the last couple of minutes that we've got here. Do you, would you have any issue with the grand final being played in Western Australia under under the assumption that 
they have a 60,000 seat stadium and by grand final time they're going to be able to have 60,000 people there in Victoria it's seeming probably unlikely by the time we get to the grand final there'll be crowds allowed uh, down here do you have any issue with uh, the the grand final moving over to to Western Australia absolutely not if uh, if you can get a full house there uh, Optus Stadium, funnily enough, is is one of the arenas or stadiums that I, I look at, and it looks as good as any when it's full, um, particularly with the lighting they've got set up there. Obviously, it's only a couple of years old, but yeah, I say go do it. Do it at night. I think it would be fantastic because obviously it might be pretty damn hot by uh, late October or early November in Perth, but the one thing I will say about this is I'm just not getting too carried away with it because... <laughs> I, I let's just say, and again, maybe I'm pessimistic on this, but let's just say I do have some concern that in a couple of weeks the WA is just going to say, "Yep, let's have sixty thousand people at an arena." Uh, we know that, and we've seen it in Victoria over the last couple of weeks that you really only need one or two irresponsible people for this to to all of a sudden turn pretty quickly on you. And my concern would be that sixty thousand people in an arena. I think it's great. But it's not going to take. It's only going to take one silly person. All of a sudden, you're not having sixty thousand people there. So that's why I think the grand final talk right now is just ridiculous because it's so far away. But if it stayed the same and Victoria couldn't have fans and and Perth could, yeah, I mean, obviously, it's an absolute no-brainer to me. There's just a lot that can happen between now and then. Yeah, that's right. There's no need to make any sort of decision on any of this. But you just got to have that possibility open. And I don't think anybody should have any. And any sort of uh, objection to the grand final, really, at, at any point being moved. I, I'm, I'm not one of those that the grand final has to be at the MCG. It's great for me because when my team's in the grand final, yeah, once in 50 years, I, I can go and it's you know, 10 minutes away. But if the grand final was in Perth and the Bulldogs were in there, I'd be over there straight away. So it, it wouldn't it wouldn't impact me that way. Of course, that's not a possibility for everybody. But you know, I, I do think that, uh, yeah, again, if that is the, the situation, nobody you know, realistically should have any complaints about that. And that'll, uh, that'll wrap us up. Kane, for today's episode of Locked On AFL. Tomorrow, reminder, we are doing the mailbag show. So you can tweet at us at Locked On AFL or hit us up if you've got a longer question on email at LockedOnAFL at gmail.com. Kane, thank you for coming on, talking about these uh, breaking Essendon news stories, talking about the top of the ladder, talking about lots of uh, lots of AFL news as the season. Uh, thankfully, it doesn't appear to be completely derailed by this uh, positive test at this point. Yeah, I always say this. Thankfully, we've got a daily podcast. We'll see how much of all this is relevant in, return, in regards to Essendon and all the rest <laughs> by tomorrow, but I look forward to it. Yeah, it is going to be, uh, things are constantly evolving, but that's why we are here for you five days a week. Don't forget, subscribe, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and on Spotify. And if you could go throw us that five-star review on Apple Podcasts, it is super important to helping out the show, guys. I'm going to leave you with a shout-out to Gary Moorcroft.